Well, good morning. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. It is good to be with you. I just want to say if you are new or visiting, welcome. If there are any ways that we can serve you or help you get connected to the community here at River City, we would love to do that. So come find me or Becky or somebody you've seen up front. We'd love to do that. Uh, Additionally, if you have any questions about something we teach about this morning or something from the passage, um, I don't always have all the answers, but I'd love to talk afterwards. So feel free to come find me. I'd love to be able to help you in any ways that I can with regards to that. So... Uh, This year, we have been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and and while this series has been on the longer side at River City, we've been in Matthew since just before December, um, what we have been studying is pretty standard, it's pretty normal here at River City. Basically, what we usually do here is basically we just pick a book of the Bible and kind of work our way verse by verse through it, chunk by chunk through it. And we do that for a couple of reasons here at River City. The first is is really this, Uh, what I have to say, my words... I don't actually have any authority. I don't have any real authority over you or over anyone else, but God's word actually does have authority. And secondly, my words don't actually have any power to change your heart or your life. I could give the most compelling, the most persuasive, the most amazing, engaging sermon of all time, but what I have to say doesn't have the power to change you. God's word is the thing that has the power to change and transform your hearts. And so my goal every week isn't to craft some expertly worded talk, but it's to show you the truth of God's word and and to do it in a way that helps to connect it with your heart so that God's word can be the thing that that motivates and changes and transforms who you are. Now, before we go on, I just want to say this. It is okay to preach a topical sermon that's not like sinful or wrong or bad or anything along those lines, right? We We do that sometimes here at River City. It's not a problem. But we just want to, we tend to err on the side of preaching expositorily because we want to create a culture in our church that elevates God's words. And what you preach about plays a role in, in the kind of culture that you create. And so that's part of what that is. So at River City, we want to create a culture here that maximizes God's word and that minimizes man's word because God's word is the thing that has authority and God's word is the thing that has power to actually change. And so what we're going to see in our passage this morning in Matthew 15 is that Jesus is rebuking a people who have done the opposite of that. Instead of elevating God's words, they've elevated man's words instead of that. And not just in their teaching on Sunday morning, but pretty much in every aspect of their lives. And so this is one of the few things that Jesus gets really angry about in in the Gospels. It's one of the few things that really ticks him off. And as we study this morning, his, Jesus' harsh rebuke of these people, we learn something incredibly important. You see, the elevation of the words of people over the words of God, it's not actually the real problem. It's not actually the real problem. Instead, it is the inevitable result of an incorrect diagnosis. You see, it's an incorrect diagnosis regarding the problem of sin. You see, the words and the actions of the people that Jesus is rebuking this morning in our passage, what they reveal is that their fundamental understanding about the problem of sin is that it is an external behavior problem. Their diagnosis, their their way that they understand what sin is, is that it is an external behaviors problem. And what we cannot miss hearing Jesus say this morning in our passage is that sin is not an external behavior problem. It is an internal heart problem. You see, it is a disease that no amount of external washing can cleanse you from. Instead, what you need is the internal cleansing that only Jesus can provide. And so with that in mind, let's, let's pray, and we'll dive into our passage and study this morning together. King Jesus, we just come before you this morning. God, it's been good to sing about your good kingly authority. 
God, how you are the only king, that your rule and reign is forever. It's just good for my heart to remember and sing those things. God, and what we want to do this morning is we want to put ourselves under the authority of your good word and allow it to be the thing that shapes us and changes us and transforms us. God, I pray that you would help me to minimize my own words and to maximize your words and so that what we have to do, our time this morning, would be fruitful and effective because it would be from you and for you. And so, God, we just say we need you. God, I need you to empower me by your spirit to teach rightly and with power. And, and we need you to enable us to respond rightly to your word by the power of your spirit. And so we are helplessly unable to meet with you and to engage with you, God, without you meeting us. And so, God, we just humbly, we come ask, would you do it? God, for your great glory, for our good, we ask those things in this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, we're in Matthew 15 this morning, beginning in verse 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law, they came to Jesus from Jerusalem and they asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus replied, and why do you break the commands of God for the sake of your traditions? For God has said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother should be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, then they're no longer to honor their father and mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him, and he said, Listen and understand. You see, what goes into somebody's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. You see, then the disciples came to him, and they asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? You got to, like, Jesus got to be like, Yeah, yeah, I know. That was kind of the point, right? Anyways, uh, the disciples, they say, do you know that you have offended the Pharisees when they heard this? And he replied, every plant that my Father, Heavenly Father has planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them, they're blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, explain this parable to us. Are you still so dull, Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth, they come from the heart. These defile them, for out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false testimony and slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. The word of God. So Matthew 15, our passage this morning, it begins with, with a delegation of religious leaders who have come all the way from Jerusalem. It's, it's like a 60-mile journey. It's like three, literally like three days of walking. Right? And so these dudes are serious about it. Their, their concern is serious. And the reason they have come all this way, their, their big concern is that the disciples are not washing their hands before they meet. And you might be thinking to yourself, listen, I've met some germaphobes in my day. This is like the next level of that. Like, this is, this is crazy. Like, they must have had an incredibly rough flu season and it's like PTSD on steroids from that, right? Or like maybe like some college freshman's mom sent them, right, on a very urgent mission to make sure that was going on. Well, the truth is, is that they didn't actually care about hygiene. That's not what this is about. Instead, what they're all riled up about is that Jesus is absolutely disregarding their practice and the teaching of their religious rituals. Jesus is disregarding and the practice and the teaching of their religious rituals. Verse 2, they say, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? 
by not washing their hands before they eat. You see, the Pharisees, they were, they were incredibly strict about following the, the Old Testament ceremonial laws, especially the clean laws. And in their zeal to keep all these clean laws, they had set up a kind of fence around the law so that they'd make sure that they never got close to breaking them. And, and so God's laws said that priests, they were required to wash their hands and to wash their feet before they performed their religious duties. But the Pharisees are like, well, if we have to do that before our religious duties, then, then probably everybody should just do that. And you know what? Why don't we just make sure that we don't get anywhere close to that, and we'll just wash our hands and our feet all the time. It doesn't need to be just before we're going to do these things. We're going to do it before we pray, and before we eat, and before we eat the second course of the meal, and, and after all these little things. And there's this incredible amount of rules and regulations about all these different ways. You can read about like the exact specified like amount of water that they had to run over their hands to make sure it was like officially clean. It was crazy, right? And these extra regulations, they referred to as the tradition of the elders or the oral law. And what happened was that over time, these man-made laws had been elevated to the level of God's word and even beyond the level of God's word. You see, but the real problem wasn't just all these extra rules or even their elevated status. The real problem is that these religious leaders, they had missed the whole point. They had, they had missed the underlying truth that all of these clean regulations were pointing towards. You see, the point of the cleanliness laws, if you, if you read them today, they kind of seem like unnecessary or confusing or just like kind of weird, right? It had, it had to do with stuff like what you could eat and what you could wear and where you could go and what things you could touch and what you needed to do after you did those kinds of things. And, and we look at those kinds of things and we're just like, that is just kind of weird. Like, what is going on with that? And the truth is, is that th- those cleanliness regulations, they, they weren't some divine hygiene manual, right? It wasn't just God keeping his people safe from, like, bad shellfish or something like that. And it wasn't just to teach God's people about how to get right with him or stay right with him. You see, God was getting at some, a deeper spiritual reality behind the physical one. You see, those cleanliness laws, they, God took them very seriously because they were pointing to something deeper. They were pointing, the, the, the strictness of those things, they were pointing to the reality of a deeper spirituality. Tim Keller notes this, he says, In the same way that dirt and disease and decay defile the body, so sin defiles the soul. You see, sin defiles you, it, it makes you dirty, it makes you unclean. Ultimately, it separates you from God who is holy and pure and clean and spotless. See, I love my kids. I especially love getting hugs from them. I got a bunch of hugs from them this morning. I love getting hugs from them, except when they've eaten anything that involves ketchup, right? Because there is ketchup on every corner of whatever they're touching and every part of their hands and most of their face, right? Like, it's not a, it's not a clean endeavor. And their ketchup-crusted selves, that separates them from me and my clean shirt, right? Because I really don't want to get my clean shirt ketchuped by everything, right? You see... But in, but in a, unlike the external problem of ketchup that separates me from my kids, you see, sin is an internal problem that separates us from God. You see, that's what all the external cleanliness gnaws were always pointing to. In verse 10 and verses 17 and 18, when Jesus turns to the crowds, he says, it's not what you put into your mouth that defiles, it's what, you, it's what comes out from your mouth, from your heart that does. He's saying sin is not an external behavior problem, it is an internal heart problem. You see, it's not your bad behavior that is defiling you, it is your, it is your heart that is diseased with sin. 
That separates you from God. You see, murder and adultery and evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and false testimony and slander, you see, those are all heart-level problems long before they are behavior problems. They're heart-level problems. You see, those are actions that flow out of a heart. You see, the Pharisees, it's not that they didn't think that sin was a problem. They thought sin was a huge problem. That's why they were so OCD about washing their hands, right? But what Jesus is telling them is that, listen, you understand the severity of the problem, but you are totally missing the reality of the problem. You are missing the nature of the problem altogether. You see, you have an inaccurate diagnosis. You see, and when you get the diagnosis wrong, you always get the treatment wrong. I don't know about you, I really enjoy doctor shows. I think it's fascinating. Like back in the day, I really enjoyed watching House or The Good Doctors, the show that's on today. I just, I think those are things are fascinating to me. And one of the, one of the dramas that happens oftentimes, it's like the official, you can't be a doctor show unless you have this in at least a couple episodes, right? Is that there's always this kind of unknown illness that somebody's trying to figure out what's going on, and it can be either one thing or this other thing. There's two possibilities. The, the symptoms kind of look the same, right? And uh, if you and they're totally different diseases. And if you treat one, you're going to make the other one worse. So you've got to get it right. It's like, you treat this with steroids, it'll either fix it or you'll die. Right? It's probably highly overdramatized. I called, Hannah's sister is a, is a podiatric surgeon. I called her. I was like, is this a thing? She's like, hmm, not really, but technically, maybe, kind of. I was like, I'm going with it, right? We're making it happen, right? You see, the, the, all those traditions of the elders that, that Jesus was breaking, all those extra laws, the religiosity, the legalism of those Pharisees, that was their treatment plan. That was their treatment plan that was based on their diagnosis that sin was an external problem. You see, the problem is, is that their diagnosis was wrong. You see, if sin is an external problem, it's one that you can fix Self-effort is enough. Just make some rules, do your best to follow them, right? Work hard, be disciplined, set up the fence. If that doesn't work, set up another fence outside of that one. If that doesn't work, just keep building walls and fences. You see, the Pharisees think that sin is an external problem that they can solve by just avoiding it or about rinsing themselves off once they come in contact with it. But the problem that Jesus points out for them and for everyone who relies on external solutions to the internal problem of sin is that it's not actually fixing the problem. It's not actually working. You see, what's happening, in fact, is it's just making things worse. You see, all those, the Pharisees, although they appear clean on the outside, Jesus says they are blind to the reality that their hearts are riddled with the disease of sin on the inside. You see, they weren't getting better. They were just getting sicker. You see, their strict adherence to the traditions of the elders was actually causing them to stray from God. And that's what, that's what Jesus is talking about in verses 3 through 6. He, he, Jesus is telling them, you see, one of the Ten Commandments, God's most clear, most decisive words to his people, right, was that you are to honor your father and mother. That was like really high on the list. And in the ancient world, this was especially true in a financial sense, right? There weren't really retirement accounts and financial planners and all that kind of stuff. Like that, that wasn't really a part of what was going on. But the religious leaders, they had found a way around this by allowing people to kind of vow or pledge or dedicate their resources to God so they didn't have to use them to help their parents, right? 
maybe they didn't like their parents, or maybe they feel like their parents hadn't loved them well enough, or for whatever reason, they didn't want to do it. And so they could, they could pledge their money to God, or their, their resources to God, but in actuality, they could kind of still maintain use of it and, and, and ownership over it. And what ha- would happen is that the religious leaders say that breaking that vow, or that pledge of dedicating your resources to God, breaking that would be worse than breaking the command to honor your parents. See, and so they had elevated the words of man over and above the words of God. See, and what we see is that that wasn't making them better. It was making them sicker. See, all their extra laws, all their strict traditions, they weren't causing them to love God more. They weren't causing them to become more like him. They weren't producing humility and honesty and generosity. They were just leading to self-righteousness and hypocrisy and greed. It wasn't leading them to real, honest, actual worship. Verse 9 tells us it was leading them to vain, worthless, hopeless nothingness. When the truth of man is central, the worship of man is always central. Because that's why the the truth of God must be central because it's only when God's truth is central that the worship of God will become central. You see, and so all their strict traditions, all their extra laws, it wasn't leading them towards rightness. It wasn't leading them, it wasn't helping them get any better. It was just making them sicker. But even more importantly, what we see in verse 8 is that their hearts were still far from God. Verse 14 Their blindness was heading them straight to the pit of hell. You see, it's not just that they were kind of off by a little bit. It's that they were were still sick in the heart. You see, J.D. Greer, he says it this way, even though legalism and religiosity can coerce your behavior, they won't actually change your motivations. And what God wants is not a group of people that can conform their behavior and mechanically do what they're supposed to God wants a group of people who love him with all their hearts and soul and mind. That's what Jesus is looking for. That's what he's longing for. That's what worship is. Worship is not your attendance. It's not your giving. Worship is not how much you pray or read your Bible. It's not how much you, good things you do in the world. That's not, that's not worship. Worship is a heart that is close to God heart that loves him and longs to glorify him with everything that you have. You see, that's what God is looking for, and that's the one thing these Pharisees could never give him. You see, legalism and religiosity, see, it masks the real problem. You see, you can clean yourself up on the outside while leaving the inside still rotting. It's like, a, it's like an extra terrible episode of that old show, Pimp My Ride. You remember that, right? People, they would come and kind of like surprise people and pick up their terrible totally worthless cars and then they'd like do a paint job and give them this like $15,000 sound system and put a TV in it and have like amazing wheels and then you're like that's great unfortunately what the car actually needed was like an engine because like that wasn't working and it's it's still not working the outside looks incredible that's great but the whole thing is still broken you see legalism and religiosity it's a false gospel you see, it, it's, it promises freedom. You can fix the problem yourself. You can be right with God by obeying enough, by doing enough, by being enough, right? But it's a false gospel that promises freedom, but all it does is just enslave you more. You see, if your effort and your obedience are the solution to the problem of sin, you will never know if you have done enough. 
You see, and it always leads, always, it always leads to comparing yourself to other people, right? And that either gets you to self-righteousness and hypocrisy like we saw in the Pharisees because you think you're better than other people, or it leads you to despair because you see how, how much other people are better than you, right? You see, legalism and religiosity, they can never solve the problem. All they do is exasperate it. They only show you how deep the problem of sin really is. How no matter what you can do, you can never get rid of it. You can't wash it off. You see, legalism and religiosity, it is an ineffective treatment, and it stems from a faulty diagnosis about the reality of sin. You see, sin is not an external behaviors problem. It's an internal heart problem. You see, but there is another false gospel that stems from an incorrect diagnosis about the problem of sin as well. And it's not in our passage this morning, but, but I think it's so important to highlight because it has the same roots. Right? See, legalism says that, that sin is an external problem that you can fix, but the opposite of legalism is liberalism, right? And liberalism says that sin isn't a problem that needs fixing at all. You see, the solution to that sense of defilement that we all feel, that, that sense that we don't measure up, that feeling that we, that we know that, that we, if we were to be tested, we wouldn't pass the test, you know, the solution that liberalism gives to that is just ignore it. Just reject it in the first place. Just embrace who you are. Embrace all of your desires. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. Don't let anyone or anything impose any restrictions on you or, or, or any categories on you. Or, or just shift the standards of right and wrong in the name of cultural progression, right? You see, but the problem is, is that just like legalism, liberalism, it doesn't work. It doesn't actually solve the problem. You see, it doesn't lead to acceptance. It just leads to judgmentalism. It, it doesn't release you from guilt and shame. It just drives those things further into your soul. See, that's why the idea that, that you would question anyone's choices is the ultimate offense to someone in the modern day. That's why the ultimate offense you can do is to question what someone else believes is right or wrong. Right? Because what happens is when you ignore what is true of God's world, you drive the problem deeper into your soul. And to touch it to prod it is like to, is to touch an infected wound, and it just hurts, and it's gross, and it's sick. You see, that's what happens. You see, liberalism, just like legalism, it can never solve the problem of sin. You see, you can become callous to God's good design. You can sear your conscience, but deep down, we all know that we are unclean. David Platt writes it this way. He says, no matter how hard we try, we cannot successfully erase the sense of ought, the sense of rightness that God has written on the human soul. You see, deep down, we all know that there is something wrong with our hearts. You see, liberalism, it's, it's very deep, different than legalism on the outside, but it's the same thing in the heart. You see, it's an elevation of man's words over and above God's words, and it's come from a faulty diagnosis about the problem of sin. You see, and the truth is, is that both of these false gospels, legalism and liberalism, they, they leave us standing before God 
condemned in our sin. You see, our hearts are still riddled with the sickness of sin which separates us from God. You see, sin is an internal problem that no amount of external washing, no amount of philosophical undermining can get rid of. You see, that message, that was utterly offensive to the religious, legalistic people of Jesus' day. And it is just as offensive to the modern ear as well. You see, the gospel message is this. There is a God and you are not him. That your words are not higher than his and your thoughts are not higher than his and your truth is not higher than his and you stand at odds with him because of the very fact that you have put yourself in above him. You see, and you cannot fix the problem of sin yourself. You cannot cleanse yourself from the disease of sin. See, the gospel says you are not enough. You see, every other religion, every other philosophical or political system says that the solution to that problem that we all feel is that you can fix yourself with external solutions, better education, better discipline, better systems, better structures, better obedience. You see, but sin is an internal problem of a heart that you cannot fix, and the Bible alone says that our problem is far deeper. See, the truth is that some of you are here this morning and you are washing and you are washing and you are washing. You're coming to church more or you're giving more or you're trying to read your Bible more or you're, or you're trying to pray more or listen to different music or hang out with the right people more or you're trying to sin less or be a better person and you are just washing and you're washing and you're washing and what you inevitably feel is that you are not getting any cleaner. You see, because sin is an internal problem of the heart. And you are not enough to solve it. You see, but the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is. You see, that's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus is the solution to the internal problem of sin, and he's the solution that God promised he would bring way back in the Old Testament in places like Ezekiel chapter 36. It reads this way. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you, I will sprinkle clean water and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I will save you from all of your uncleanliness. Did you notice in that passage there was nothing about you doing anything? God says, I will cleanse you. I'll remove all of your uncleanliness. You see, in that day, the day God promised would come, that day happened 2,000 years ago. We celebrated just a few months back. It's called Good Friday. You see, Good Friday is the day that we remember that Jesus, that he took on the disease of sin on the cross so that you and I might be made clean. You see, it is his blood transfusion offered on the cross that makes us clean. First John chapter 1, verse 7, it says this, it is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from every sin. See, what Jesus did for us, his life, his death given for us. You see, him trading places with us by faith in him that enables us to receive his cleansing, the, the cleansing that he died to give us. You see, he took on the defilement of sin, the decay of sin, the, the dirt of sin, and all that that entailed. He took on the separation from God that sin always leads to, and he took on the just judgment of sin, which is death. You see, and he did it so that you and I might be cleansed 
might be purified, might be made clean. The Bible talks about how we are now clean and spotless, unblemished, just as Jesus is. See, this is the message of the gospel. It is an utter offense. You are powerless to save yourself. But Jesus had all the power that was needed. And he used it to save us. That's what we remember and that's what we celebrate every week when we take communion together. You see, communion, what we're doing is we're remembering our need for Jesus' body and his blood to be broken and shed for us to cleanse us from the internal defilement of sin. You see, in communion, we're remembering and we're, we're celebrating our insufficiency and we're celebrating Christ's total sufficiency. You see, we're, we're celebrating that Jesus was enough, that, that he is the one that, that came to accomplish what we could never accomplish on our own, that through by his blood... And through his death that we are forgiven and cleansed and purified that we are free we're free to live for god and to love him and to enjoy him and and to become more like him so that his glory fills the earth as people who love and follow and imitate him bear witness about him in every corner of the globe you see communion it doesn't make you right with god it doesn't save you jesus does see when we take communion it's about remembering him it's about celebrating by remembering our need for him, our utter need for him, and his abundant provision for us. See, the bread and the juice, they're in the back. They remind us of Jesus' body that was broken for us and his blood shed for us that cleanses us from all sin. You see, dipping the bread in the juice, putting it in your mouth, right? Just like whatever else you eat, it can't fix you and it can't defile you. You see, what you need is an internal heart cleansing. Jesus alone can do that for you. Him alone, just him. Not him plus some other stuff, not him or anything else, just him. And so as we sing and as we take communion this morning, talk with God. You see, it's so easy for us to, to look at legalism or liberalism of others and, 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 to, and to look at the, at the choices and the lives of others and compare ourselves. But I can't, I can't help but think that what God wants us to do this morning is to look inside our own hearts. You see, maybe you are here this morning and your response to that sense of defilement of sin that you rightly feel is just to reject it altogether, to say that it isn't a problem. Or, or just to shift the standards of what is right and wrong in line with cultural progression. And the reality is that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt is it's not working. It's not solving the problem that you have of sin in your heart. You see, but there is a solution to that problem. And his name is Jesus. But you have got to admit that you are sick in order to receive the cure. Some of you are here this morning, and you, you've rejected the problem of sin altogether, but others of you are here this morning, and you are relying on external solutions to fix the internal problem of sin. You are trying hard to wash yourself and to clean yourself up, to make yourself presentable. See, and the truth is, is that what you think is making you clean is just emphasizing and exasperating the fact that your heart is riddled with sin. 
You see, when we try to clean ourselves up, you see, legalism, all it is, religiosity, all it is, is self-sufficiency. And it is an utter offense to the God of the universe. Legalism says, God, I don't need you. God, I am enough on my own to fix the problem. What you did either wasn't enough or isn't enough. I have to do something else in order to make sure that that sticks. You see, that is an utter offense to the God of the universe who came giving himself for you. You see, legalism and liberalism, it is self-sufficiency, and what needs to happen with that is repentance. For us to reject it altogether and say, Jesus, I have been relying on something other than your blood to make me right with you. And it is utter sin. It's not just a mistake. It is rebellion. You see, and Jesus comes this morning. Not with a hammer, but with an open hand to you. You see, in the gospel, he is offering you life, not judgment. You stand condemned. He's offering you a way out. And there is life and there is freedom. But we got to admit that your heart is sick. And that what you need is the internal cleansing that only he can give. So this morning, what is it that you are relying on to make yourself clean? How are you trying to wash yourself? What are you trying to clean yourself up with? See, whatever it is, repent of your self-sufficiency, come humbly before the one who can cleanse you, or if you have put your faith in him already, who already has cleansed you, and ask him to cleanse you, or ask him to remind you of the cleansing he has already given you. You see, ask him to do what you're doing can never do. We came across this old hymn this week, it's by James Proctor, the last verse goes this way. It says, cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. See, that's the message of the gospel this morning. You see, you're doing, it's just killing you. It's exasperating the problem. It's not making it any better. You see, but King Jesus has come so that you might lay your deadly doing down and that you might stand in him gloriously complete. You see, he is enough. His work is enough. He's enough for you. He is enough for your family. He is enough for your friends. He is enough for your neighbors. He is enough for your coworkers, for the people around you. He is more than enough. You see, in Jesus' internal cleansing, it's the thing that totally changes us. But what happens is that it always leads to an external change in you. And so the question is, how is the internal change of the gospel producing an external change in you? One of the, one of the ways that that most fundamentally changes us is that we pursue holiness, is that our lives come into line with God's word and his authority. But one of the other ways that it most clearly gets worked out is that we go with Jesus where he is going into places that might feel too dirty, into places that might feel like they are defiling, and we go with him to join him in his, the redeeming work that he is doing because places and things and people are not what defiles us. It's our hearts. You see, and King Jesus is powerful enough to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he's the one that cleanses you and that keeps you clean. I'm not saying that there are places that we shouldn't wisely avoid or there are situations we shouldn't put ourselves into. But what I am saying is that so often we look at people and places and things as the thing that defiles us. And that is a fundamental 
misunderstanding of the problem of sin altogether. You see, it's not something out there that makes us dirty. It's something in here. So the question is, will we join Jesus as he has cleansed us in the cleansing work that he is doing? You see, he is the one that makes you clean, and so stick close to him. Join him where he is going for, for in the work that he is doing. And this morning, as we close, as we celebrate communion, as we remember our insufficiency and Jesus' great sufficiency, let us worship God together. Let's, let us remember the gravity of sin. Let it sink into your heart that it's not an external problem that you can fix on your own. And then let yourself be overwhelmed by the totality of Jesus' cleansing blood given for you, which is the one thing that makes you internally clean. Let that free you. Let that give you joy. Let that bring you life. Let it give you hope in the midst of chaos. Let it fuel your life and your obedience given for him. You see, that's the good news of the gospel. Let the goodness of the gospel displace the offense. See, you are not enough, but Jesus is, and that's really good news. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come before you this morning. God, we are so grateful. God, we are grateful that we are not enough, but that you are. God, and that what you have done on the cross is the one thing that totally fixes the problem of sin. God, no amount of washing or external cleansing that we could do can ever fix the problem. Ah, oh, but Jesus, you give us a new heart. And you give us a new soul that longs to love you and follow you and pursue you and obey you. That instead of just fighting evil desires, God, you put new desires in us so that what we long for is in line with you. And so, God, we thank you that on the cross you make that possible. And that by faith you make it a reality in our lives. And so we ask King Jesus, God, for your glory, for our good. God, would you give us new hearts that love you and pursue you? God, would you root out the false gospels of legalism and of liberalism in our hearts? Would you help us to, to see them for the lies that they are? God, and would you graciously, lovingly, generously cause the good news about the gospel to sink deep into us? so that we might rest in your finished work on our behalf that makes us clean. God, would that give us life and joy? Would it cause like a, a longing for the gospel to be spread among us? God, for your glory, for our good, we pray all these things. Amen.